Welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions Podcast. My name is Kyle Bird, and with me, uh, I have some friends to help us with another uh, horror episode for October. Um, I have uh, from the Final Forum Podcast, and I mean, really, you know, everyone knows you guys from this podcast also, (laughs) but I have Tom, uh back for another round of um spooktacular thrills and chills yeah at least one of those things <laughs> <laughs> um i also have uh someone who has more important things to do than dog things and made it here anyway lux edwards you stole my intro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was yeah. going to say. How'd you read my mind? Um, also, uh, uh, from, uh, well, I, you know what? I really did mess that up, because you're also in Florida, and that is also where you probably should be outside screaming at clouds all day. I do, actually. Yeah. And, and, t- and, and then yell at your coworkers until you are forced to take a vacation where you just go and yell at everybody anyway. I also but. have no idea how to drive a stick shift car. <laughs> um, and then also uh, uh, our buddy Kevin Derendorf, uh, Mazer Patrol. Welcome back. Welcome, Leave everybody. Leave me alone! <laughs> um we're all delirious after these movies <laughs> yeah um these are two weird ones um and uh they're weird and similar and different reasons but uh and there's a few reasons why i think it makes sense to pair these together so we are talking about um uh, the Manster, which is a 1959 movie, uh, and then um, Revenge of Dr. X, a.k.a. Venus Flytrap, a.k.a. Body of the Prey, a.k.a. The Devil's Guardian, Garden, I'm sorry, um, a.k.a. The Devil Garden, a.k.a. The Double Garden. Uh, if you're wondering, I mean, yes, it's not uncommon for B-movies to have a billion titles, although there's, a spe- there's specific reasons why that one has 700 of them, and uh, we will discuss those later. Um, and that is um, 1968, that movie, even though most places say 1970. Um, like, there's all kinds of madness behind why anything with that movie is the way it is. Anyway, the reason these are paired up is uh, these are two independent movies um, 
shot in Japan uh, by mostly American um, crew uh, and in some cases cast as well. Um, and uh, they're, they, they also get compared a, li- a lot for, for it, to the point where one of the, a lot of places still credit these movies as being directed by the same person, which is not true. Um, more on that later. Um, but yeah, usually when we think about um, uh, co-productions or these monster movies that are made in Japan, they're usually um, made with, uh, you know, for example, King Kong Escapes. That's Toho and Rankin Bass. Um, and, you know, no, you wouldn't bet an eye at that being included in, uh, you know, talking about Japanese monster movies. Um, this is a case where the American uh, personnel are there uh, to make a movie more for American audiences than Japanese. Um, and uh, so while it's common even for something like The Bermuda Depths, which was a Rankin-Bass movie with Japanese personnel um, to be talked about, or something like um, in Super Inframan or Mighty Peking Man, you know, those are Hong Kong movies with Japanese personnel. Here we have kind of the opposite of that. So we have American directors in Japan. Uh, do they know what they're doing? I don't know. Uh, maybe not. Um, so uh, the we'll just go uh, in kind of chronological release date order, which probably makes sense um, anyway. But um, so yeah, the, the Manster is a movie that has all kinds of different release dates, release years, and stuff. Um, and it actually was released in Japan, um, and that was one um, uh, that was made by United Artists. Um, and, uh, United Artists, uh, of Japan, I guess they had a Japanese branch or whatever, but with, with a lot of movies back then, you know, well, I mean, you even say it, see it today when a movie has, you know, financing or money tied up in another country and they have to shoot there. Um, so that's the case here. That's why, uh, the Manster was made in Japan. Um, so United Artists of Japan, uh, made that independently of, the American and Japanese studio system. So, you know, no, this wasn't made here by, you know, a Fox or MGM or whatever. It wasn't made there by a Toho or Daie or whoever. Um, uh, it's independent movie. Um, <clears throat> there is some Japanese crew behind the scenes, but um, it's mostly just, I don't know, just whoever they could get together at the time. So it's not like you're getting any real behind-the-scenes credits from people that worked on, you know, Godzilla or Gamera or Ultraman or whatever. Um, uh, so this is directed by... Uh, co Well, I guess directed and produced by two guys. One is a director named Kenneth G. Crane, um, who we, we spoke about something he did ever so briefly on a previous episode, and that is uh, he actually directed the American cut of Half Human, um, so if you've suffered through that, that was his, uh, and then, uh, also sharing directing duties is, uh, George Brakeston, uh, who was a child actor, um, 
in his early career, uh, and he was in movies like It Happened One Night, so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, The Manster, uh, I think, is more well-known than the other movie we're talking about, but weirdly enough, there's not quite as much information out there about it. Um, it also has some familiar faces, though. Uh, uh, you have uh, Jerry Ito, um, who people listening would know um, from Mothra as uh, uh, Nelson. Um, you have Tetsu Nakamura, who um, also from Mothra, um, but he's also in The Last Dinosaur and Latitude Zero. Um, those are two Japanese actors that spoke very fluent English, and so that probably had a lot to do with why they're in here. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, originally it was titled, and I think even released in some places like the UK, I think even Japan, maybe, I don't want to, don't quote me on that, uh, under the title The Split. Um, yeah, so, the, I mean, the, the if you look at the Japanese poster, it has the big text where it says, uh, Soto no Satsujinki, which is like the two-headed killer, but then it says the split in English uh, on the other side. So, hmm. um, I don't know. This is one where I feel like uh, it's it's a movie that I think I'm pretty sure it's public domain now. Um, the image of the guy with the eye in his shoulder isn't is is probably something that some people might might have seen before. Um, it's definitely something that you know Sam Raimi. Uh, you've, you've <laughs> invoked in uh, Army of Darkness, um, and so I think that that's probably the most famous thing from this movie. Um, the movie itself, I don't think, gets talked about very much. Scream Factory did a Blu-ray of it, which looks great, but I mean, this is a movie that can be seen in many ways all over the place, and you know, it was one of those discs where it was like completely bare bones but like your normal scream factory price and it's like eh can i though i mean i guess if you really love the manster i guess <laughs> but um so uh um yeah so i am going to randomly choose tom to give us a synopsis of of the manster yeah this one is um although i don't remember any character name but <clears throat> <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't Larry, the much. guy, the main guy's name okay, is yeah. Larry. Larry. Larry <laughs> is a reporter. Well, actually, the movie starts with a a bit of a, a, a preamble, if you will, of our. Would you call him the main antagonist? The, yeah, the, he's the he's, scientist of. Yeah, of he's the closest you have to an antagonist here. Yeah. Of, of our main antagonist type um, talking to a pair of misshapen people. <laughs> <laughs> Who, one of whom he has chained up in his dungeon slash laboratory. And the other one of whom is like just there. And he dispatches that one and says, like, you're too dangerous to be allowed to live. Huh, what's going on here? Flash over to Larry, our foreign news correspondent who has spent a bunch of time in Tokyo 
and is <clears throat> getting ready to go back home for the first time in, in quite a while. His final assignment is to interview this scientist who lives in his secret volcano lair, which <laughs> gave nobody red flags. Um, this, the reason it's interesting is this newspaper has heard that this doctor has come across some sort of a breakthrough of some kind in human evolution and, and, and studies of human anatomy. So Larry goes to talk to him and the doctor is, is kind of cagey, kind of, kind of not super interested in answering him, but very interested in having him try uh, a drink that, that he's like, Hey, let's just, you know, hang out for a bit here, have a drink. And of course, that makes Larry very sleepy and he suspects nothing for whatever reason again. <laughs> and he soon passes out. When he passes out, our our mad doctor injects something into his shoulder and then like waits for him to wake back up and then says, Hey, you know, like let's hang out again tomorrow at this this place of which I know of. And, um, you know, meanwhile, while, while Larry is actually passed out, the doctor's scientists, uh, yeah, the, the scientist's assistant is like, we shouldn't be doing this. You know, you can't, you can't be doing this to people. And the scientist is like, he's the perfect candidate, which, Oh, I mean, why <laughs> they, they say he's they say he's 38 he looks maybe maybe looking 20 years older than you are <laughs> is is makes you a perfect candidate for for whatever these experiments are uh i don't know yes but he's the perfect candidate and and everything will go perfectly with him what everything is is never very much explained <laughs> Um, then, you know, the next day as Larry's kind of, kind of getting ready to leave, he's still kind of chasing down this story a little bit and, you know, he calls his wife and he's like, I just got to do this last story and I'll come home. And then he meets the doctor out at like a, like a geisha house. And as they're drinking, that's all this Larry, guy does, by the way, as, as they're drinking, Larry becomes more and more debaucherous, which he actually very explicitly states earlier in the movie that like he has had eyes only for his wife the entire time that he's been in Japan. And so for him to, within days of going back home, suddenly slip into this debauchery is uh, an interesting development. Um, then, uh, then, he kind of slips further and further and further. He starts hanging out with the doctor more, drinking more, uh, becoming more and more interested in the company of pleasurable women until he winds up meeting the doctor's uh, assistant formally. And they're formally kind of introduced to each other. And he, 
he lusts after her and he tells his wife he's not coming home and his wife comes over to Japan to try and bring him back home and he's like, I'm not going, leave me alone! And his boss becomes very concerned for him and and wants him to like seek psychiatric help because he is like looks terrible. He looks very tired and haggard and he's drinking and you know fooling around behind it. Well, not behind in front of his wife's face. And um all of us not all of a sudden, but you know, this this ultimately manifests itself in uh, Larry's hand becoming monstrous and his and a giant eyeball growing in his his right shoulder. He then is, you know, wandering around the streets of J- Japan seeking help and winds up killing some people. Um, now there's a murder investigation on top of everything else. Um, and, you know, everything kind of starts to to zero in more and more on on Larry and it all culminates in in Larry being pushed so far by you know the murder investigation and his wife and his boss and everyone who's kind of pressing on him to like get his act back together it it all manifests in this monstrosity kind of further going and like a second head popping out of his shoulder and him becoming like a rampaging monster on the loose. And now this, this rampaging monster has to, has to be stopped. Um, yeah, that's the monster. Um, and yeah, the, this, our, our lead character is, uh, I don't know, even before he like, He's he's weird the whole time. Like even before he, <laughs> if I don't know, I, I this is the kind of role that someone like Lon Chaney Jr. or something could probably make like charming and really sympathetic. But uh, yeah, this guy uh, uh, Peter Peter Dinley um, is is he just always kind of like the worst. Um, uh, what what yeah? What's interesting though is like. I think he's more or less done like with his job or whatever, and he's supposed to be going home. And then the doctor is like, since he's, for whatever reason, the perfect uh, experiment or something, he tries to keep him in Japan. And he's like, that's where, that's when he's like throwing his assistant at him um, and, you know, and sed- like having her like seduce him and, um, you know, giving it, getting him, you know, introducing him to like the nightlife and going to parties and stuff. Um, and like, meanwhile, his wife is just like, are you going to like come home or what? And he's just like acting insane. Um, yeah. The, the first time he hangs out with the doctor is for the, the job. And then the second time that he like agrees to do it, it's kind of like as a courtesy, it's like, it's it's like he has written the story and he's gonna hang out with this guy one more time before he goes back. Yeah, yeah. And and it's gonna be like his last night in town, and then he like just goes kind of crazier and crazier and falls further and further into like deciding not to go home and yeah, telling his wife to piss off and <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this is a movie I actually didn't see until 
maybe even last year, within the last two years. Um, it's a movie, I was very familiar with stuff like the eyeball, the image of the eyeball in the shoulder, just from, you know, books about monster movies, just shows up in places. You know, um, I think TNT at one point were using it for, like, one of their, I don't know if it was Monster Vision, but, like, one of their bumpers or whatever. Um and I first read about it like when I was a kid, like in like Stuart Galbraith's books and, and stuff like that. And then um, this was on the shortlist last year, and I was like, oh, it's like an hour and ten minutes, so I just watched it. Um, and we're finally getting around to it this year. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I don't um, I guess uh, we'll kind of just share our, our general thoughts Um Kevin, I'm going to go with you because I feel like you're probably the only one that saw this before the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just looked it up because uh, I wrote a review in 2011 when I saw it. Uh, and uh, yeah, my, my the first line of uh, the review is, oh, Manster, where have you been all my life? So I was, I, I was quite <laughs> taken with this film. Yeah, it's it's got a, a lot of the old school monster movie charm that I think, you know, there's an intersection here between like Toho mutant movies and like the 1940s era of like universal monsters. Um, Tom, what about you? This was a first time viewing for me. Uh, And it was a wild ride. Um, (laughs) Just everything, like like you've mentioned. I mean, just the like knowing what they were going for with the protagonist, but m- missing that initial setup of him being a good guy as as hard as they did. <laughs> <laughs> then watching this movie about this just miserable, unlikable little jag off just being an awful awful person and everyone else around him being so concerned and you're just like who cares <laughs> <laughs> and in a good way like like why do you people care about him so much it's a wild ride and then and then we'll get to the ending i'm sure but but the ending kind of stuck the landing in it in an interesting way because it very much seems like it's going to careen towards a hand wavy. Everything is all right now kind of ending. And it zags off of that course just enough to kind of stick the landing. Yeah, that's um that's more or less true. Um for whatever reason, the last like, like the version on Am cuz this movie's easy to see, like I said. Um there's some uh versions of the movie floating out there that are missing the last like minute. Like the little epilogue or the little coda like Mo, uh, like the version on Amazon that I watched, because I'd seen this movie before, and I was like, you know, I remember a little bit. Uh, like the version I watched on Amazon Prime just goes like once the monster is like thrown into the volcano or whatever, it just goes the end, 
And I, I was like, I remember more. Mm. So then, like, I looked it up on YouTube because uh, this movie's on YouTube like a hundred times, and I was like, there is more. <laughs> so like the last like minute I watched on YouTube, and that's where like yeah, they're like, oh, you know, how much of that was him, and how much of it was the monster taking over and stuff like. So be wary of that. If 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 you watch a version of this that ends like smash cuts to the end when the monster is killed, then go on YouTube and watch the other minute. <laughs> um, Lux, how do we feel about the manster over there? I had a similar experience to this movie as you, Kyle. Um, I mean, I was, it seemed like I was always really aware of it since I was a kid, like seeing it in different, like, monster encyclopedia books and that kind of stuff. And I also remember seeing it in like, it was probably monster vision commercials on TNT with the, uh, the arm or the, the eye and the shoulder. Um, but didn't get around to watching until now, strangely enough. Um, so I think my opinion though is going to fall. It sounds like somewhere in between Kevin and Tom. Um, I did, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, I like the way it very much made me feel like I was watching those old, like 40s universal monster movies, but also uh, a little bit of, you know, that Japanese feeling thrown in as well. Um, and honestly, I, 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 other than our protagonist slash antagonist, Larry, uh, I enjoyed the cast. Um, I I thought everyone was really interesting. I, I liked the performances, um, okay, maybe not the wife either. L- Linda wasn't that great either, but um, no, she's every- going through a lot. <laughs> uh, everyone else, though, I-, I really enjoyed the performances. I thought the set pieces were really neat. They built a, a lot of sets for this. There's a lot of different locations mm-hmm. that they filmed. Um, even though it's you can clearly tell they're all on soundstage, other than the chase sequences. Um, speaking of the chase sequences, the, the very last one is probably my my favorite part of the film. And like I said, or like Tom said. Um, where it really sticks the landing is uh, the chase with the big with the monster at the end, while the, the the police are after him and they're going through all the oh jumping over walls and then they're climbing up different towers and the box creates it like the ports and then it, like the, it chases them all the way back to the, the secret lab in the mountains and it's just really it's bizarre and out there it's just, it's really fun to watch. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that much of it. And then there was just parts of it that were not so good, like Larry and <laughs> being completely just, I, I don't care about he's Larry. The worst. <laughs> he's horrible and he's supposed to be 35 and he looks like he's 70. The actor was only, we, we were talking about this, uh, off air. The actor was only 38 when they made the movie. But like, this is one of those things where it's like, you look at some old movies and you're like, how is this 70 year old, like th- actually like 30? I don't know. I, <laughs> we were saying it's probably like all the smoking and all the things that were detriment to people's health that they didn't quite understand a lot about back then. Um, I remember, uh, I probably have it somewhere. I I bought for like $3 at like a dollar store or something, like a DVD that was like a compilation of like old vintage commercials. And like, I don't know, I I think stuff like that's fun. And um, yeah, I remember I was watching, like every other ad was like some celebrity or some baseball player or whatever on cigarette commercials. 
And I remember I was like, I bet if I look, I, I bet if I look all these people up, they probably all, all died very young <laughs> from lung <laughs> cancer. And sure enough, that was like all of them. So like, yeah, it was just like normal then. Um, I, I feel like how haggard he is kind of helps with the story because the idea is that he's this like foreign correspondent who's been going around to like war zones and, and traveling the world and, and is like ready to, he's like one week away from retirement, go back to New York and get a jest job or whatever. And like, that's, that's when all this goes awry. You know, a performance I actually like, uh, not that the character is the most likable person was, um, the assistant Tara that, um, the, the doctor like, basically makes like like he 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 makes her like sleep with him you know and to get keep him in japan basically but she has that real really like she does that whole like sort of stuck up sort of bitchy thing like really nailed down and um i think this was her that, that actress terry zimmer and i was reading this i think this was her only acting role um, and mm. I think she just, I think she was a model that just kind of landed in this, but she ended up marrying the director and, um, I'm pretty sure they stuck together for like the rest of their lives. Um, uh, Brett Hominick tracked her down and interviewed her on his blog. Um, I think she passed away in 2020, but I don't know that that's like a performance I look at and I'm like, that doesn't seem like a first time actress to me. I mean, her character is the one that is actually the most interesting in the movie, I think, even though she's a complete side character. Yeah. Because she starts off like this, you know, like you said, she's just uh, stone cold, you know, femme fatale, doesn't have any emotions or care about anybody, um, and says so herself multiple times that, you know, she's, you know, I don't care about anything. It's like, you know, we can do whatever. And so she's just like this henchman for the mad scientist, but then over the course of the movie, for somehow she falls in love with this yeah, Larry yeah. She, dude. Yeah, <laughs> she ends up kind of caring about him. And I don't, we, we don't even know why the people that do like him care about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and then the, the, she starts to care about him so much that, the, you know, uh, Tetsu Nakamura starts, like, uh, threatening her, like, oh, you know, you can go back to where I found you. And it's, it's never yeah. really explicitly said where wow, she came from. Wow, what does that from. mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's, he, does, he threatens her a couple times <laughs> with that. And it's like, okay, it must be a pretty terrible place, you know, but and she doesn't seem to care. And it's like, yeah. okay, why do you like Larry so much? But, but, but that's some extreme character growth. <laughs> and for a, for a movie any. like this, it's more than you would think yeah, <laughs> you I, would I, get. It's, it's, that, like, um, in terms of... First of all, the whole thing where like it's not clear where she came from, but it's also like she's not a Japanese actress, so mm-hmm. it's like this kind of implication that maybe she came from like Hong Kong or something like Korea, outside. So, like um, so yeah. she's kind of indebted and and you know working in and not the most uh, on the up and up ways, but then also I I can see like she would be kind of one of the more sympathetic figures just because she knows that what's going on with Larry is not due to like his own decisions as much as him being under the influence of Suzuki. So like, yeah. And then, um, yeah, and the it's doctor, also like it, it should be pointed out with her, with her as opposed to Larry, for example, 
her character growth and her like turn isn't out of nowhere. Like, like, like we mentioned, Larry's becoming bad is the only thing we ever see of that character. They, they, the movie drops the ball on setting him up as sympathetic with her, even though she says, I've sold my soul to work with you and I don't care about people right from the very beginning. She does at least raise that objection of like, shouldn't we maybe not do this to this guy? (laughs) So there is still some moral code at work within her, whether it, you know, there's, there's some sort of awareness. And so even just right from the beginning, she's kind of on that, that she's like on teetering on the brink basically of going too far over the edge. And for whatever reason, Larry is what brings her kind of back over to the right side of things. But Suzuki, what the, what the doctor is with it. It's, I actually think the science behind his experiences, his experiments, sort is of, it's pretty it's, cool. It's, I mean, it's for like the time period. He, um, I mean, it's not really like it delved into, but he says he's he's basically the human genome to do something with evolution. Whether I'm not quite clear on whether he's trying to accelerate evolution or like turn back human evolution, he's doing. I think he's just trying to create something new um, because at the 50s, they were really starting to understand DNA, figured out, you know, you know, it's a, it's a double helix. And they were really, he brought in of uh, cosmic rays uh, causing mutations in DNA because that's real science. And that's still something that, that we tell him for how DNA may have been altered, uh, you know, in the past. And so, really popular theory is like you know most people are like right-handed or most animals and stuff are right-handed um that's we that's a prevailing theory is that cosmic radiation caused that in early life forms so it's really interesting that i think this real science is actually a real science from the mad scientist that he's using um huh interesting i just figured it was like 50s movie made up nonsense <laughs> which i mean it is but i guess if if they're actually mentioning things that are real um uh yeah i i you know i am uh, not well versed in my cosmic rays um uh but yeah i guess i don't know if it was the in- cuz like at the end when the monster splits from him it's like this little like sasquatch thing it's like a guy in an ape suit basically so that's why i was wondering like okay maybe it's like um reversing human evolution yeah and at the beginning of the film it's like his i think it's his brother that it's just the other creature that's also you know this kind of uh monkey man thing that's i couldn't remember what the other creature was his brothers but um the female that he has he reveals was his wife this is why and that yeah. they're both volunteers and, and he, yeah yeah and that's another thing with like larry and they're like well like did you like 
everyone else has been a volunteer. This is the first time you're like doing this like to someone against their will. And he's like, oh, it's, I'm sure it's <laughs> fine. <Whatever>. Um, <laughs> I, I will. I got. I mean, I, I got to say, as goofy as this movie is, the the stuff with the wife in the like jail cell or whatever is like disturbing to me. Like that's actually like I thought so too. <laughs> the, probably the most effective stuff is a horror movie that this movie has to offer. Is is probably that? Yeah, it's definitely like some dated makeup effects, but it's still really creepy looking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the that that's where like uh, this movie has like a really twisted kind of like sick murders in the room morgue almost kind of. Uh, vibe going, and and I like it because it's gratuitous in the sense that like like a penny pinching executive could have just been like, oh, we don't need these these basement monsters; they don't add anything to the plot or whatever. But like, it's just that extra level of uh, kind of uh, creature weirdness going on. Yeah, it, that's like the ex, that, that's like ex, the exploitation film. I like them because out. they make you actually, you know care about this mad scientist dude he's not just some <laughs> random guy he's another one that has a he's another one that like at the very last minute he's like this was horrible why did i do this and <laughs> yeah there's like there's this great he's scene like where, um where tara confronts him like yeah he's like he tries yeah, to tara kill him confronts him yeah. and gives him you know the uh the little knife so that he'll you know she's like here you do what you need to do and he's about to commit seppuku and after like shooting his wife but then you know, Larry has to show up, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just I just thought that Larry's was always ruining everything. He was about to like you know have an honorable death, realizing he had made a mistake. But then he tried to take out Larry, and that was just a, a step too far. <laughs> <laughs> Larry's got to ruin everything, even you know people Kill just themselves. trying to miss a poku. <laughs> and then. And then we get to the the end of the movie where it, like, not just in, like, I, I know what Lux is saying about it. Yeah, it, it sticks the landing in that the, the ending is satisfying, even though a bit rushed, like, especially the kind of the, the resolution of it all is just, you know, everyone falls into the volcano, the end, you know. But what really makes it work for me is you've, if you've seen enough of these you know, fifties era kind of monster movies, you're thinking, all right, the monster split out from Larry. So the monster's going to die and everyone's going to say it was the monster all along. Let's go, Larry. Let's have a great rest of our lives together <laughs> and, and have this happy ending. And instead the movie is like, the movie's like, ma'am, we need to arrest your husband. We're taking him to jail. He <laughs> will stand understand. trial for murder. Like <laughs> it wasn't him. You don't understand. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, I I think it. If it's not the first, it's one of the first scenes with Jerry Ito. I don't know if it, I don't think it's the introductory scene because he yeah he plays the police captain that is kind of trying to figure all this out and ends up like leading the hunt for the monster. Um, yeah, there's there's a scene that makes me laugh where like I don't know, all these reporters like I don't know, I don't 
it's I don't I wouldn't call it a press conference, but he ba- he basically has all these reporters come to visit him. So he's like, hey, here's what's up with these murders, and then like pretty much all he says is like, yeah, we don't know, and then the reporters leave, and they're like. Next time you call us here, make sure you have have something yeah, to I'm say. Yeah, sure that is the first time we see Jerry Ito in the movie because it's like right yeah. after the Buddhist is get, uh, monk gets killed. The guy that's, from Seven yeah. Samurai. Yeah, that's and right. And it's like, yeah, here's there's Jerry Ito. We're you know more than halfway through the movie. <laughs> it, it feels like reporters yeah. in this universe are just generally pushy because, like, remember Larry shows up at the Suzuki's house and it's like, hey, I'm here to check out your work and. Suzuki's like, well, I'm I'm a theorist, and Larry's like, that's boring. Don't you have something interesting? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So we mentioned the the Buddhist monk, uh, played by Shinpei Takagi. What's interesting about this is that he is so yeah, he's credited as the the monk and everything. He's also got a special effects credit on this movie, um. I, I I guess I don't know. I wasn't paying attention to the credits when I watched it, but um, that's like the only thing I can see of him like doing special effects. Like he's mostly an actor. Hmm. Um, but I would think it would be like too much of a coincidence to have an actor and a special effects guy with the same name. Like on the same movie, right? Like I don't know. It, it, it's if I mean if it's true, then it's really strange. He was a stunt guy, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, that's why you know he's playing. You know, like Lux mentioned, he's in Seven Samurai. Like he's one of the bandits. Um, uh, he was in um, uh, uh, the Marine Kong uh, suit in the Kaiju series Marine Kong from 1959. Um, he was he was the monster, maybe um, in the suit. So so yeah, maybe, maybe yeah, maybe being an American maybe production was... as opposed to Japanese, they did things perhaps a little more above board, and you know this guy at some point helped work on a costume or something, and a producer or. They're like, okay, you yeah. get an effects credit because you did. Yeah, like you know, a producer or like use. this guy did something that he probably did on all of the movie. Because if he's in like the Marine Kong suit, he may have just. I'm just. I'm just hypothesizing, right? He may have done some stitching on it or repairs on it or whatever, just as a matter of course, because he was in it, and that's just like. Like, hey, everyone, just do your part and help the production along. And he may yeah. have done something on this that was just he thought was like just doing his part and helping the production. And someone saw it and was like, "That's effects work." <laughs> How about you get a credit for that and maybe um, like an extra five dollars? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, we we've talked a lot about Larry and just how he's a drunk idiot <laughs> um who's very quick to cheat on his wife and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um Yeah, I mean that that's not the a character that's particularly always enjoyable to watch, but like I don't know, I always like 
protagonists that are kind of like that. Like especially in these old movies, like it adds a little bit to just kind of the charm because it's like you you wouldn't see that in a lot of movies today. Is just like let's make this our main character just this completely reprehensible person. <laughs> the movie in the yeah, the, this is one where they're actually trying to make him sympathetic, and it's just like I don't know if it like I don't know I don't know you how well it's, it's working. It's definitely going, um, especially in the back half for this very this Jekyll and Hyde story where he or. Yeah, Jekyll and Hyde, Wolfman, kind of negotiate. You know, all of the stuff like Tom said with his wife trying to to intervene and his uh, his boss and everybody else. And then it comes to the night and he starts wandering around the city and killing people randomly because he's the monster at night. It's it has a very Jekyll and Hyde feel at that point in the movie, and you just don't care about Larry though. (laughs) You don't. You have you have all Hyde and no Jekyll. Yeah, yeah. It's um, in addition, though, to being like 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 burden, like you mentioned, it, it it is kind of that charm of like you would you would absolutely not see a modern movie portray someone this poorly as someone we're supposed to sympathize with, <laughs> and that is that's like a charming yeah. like faux pas. But what there's there's the other thing like that a modern movie would do that I just appreciate that we used to be able to do more is it like, like you mentioned, if, if Lon Chaney was playing this, the two sentences that they give us where he says, no, I've, I've never messed around with my wife the entire time I was here. Why would I actually would have worked and you would have felt sympathy, sympathy for the guy, (laughs) but it doesn't spend 25 minutes with this character before in like tedium and boredom of like establishing who he is. It, it, it's a miscalculation because the actor is not as charming and sympathetic (laughs) as like a Lon Chaney Jr. or something, but it's economic with its running time to not waste our time with a whole bunch of tedium setting this guy up as cuz it well yeah that i mean that 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 is definitely something of the last 10 15 years that just pads out movie runtimes and it knows what kind of movie yeah, it is, is. you know it's not it's not out here trying to be high art so why spend the 20 minutes to establish this guy let's just get into it yeah i mean you even see that in movies that are a little bit more um respectable you know i always i always think of like the first scene in cronenberg's the fly it's literally in the middle of a conversation we don't even see how the conversation starts and jeff goldblum has already built his telepod and we are we don't even see the two people meet we just are put right in the middle of a conversation let's go that's the movie you know nowadays you would be like oh well i'm trying to build this thing and you know 45 minutes into the movie is when the teleportation device even gets used you know so that but yeah the the i mean this this movie is only an hour and 10 minutes so, so like this is 
as long as like I mean, there's TV episodes <laughs> longer than this movie. You know, so yeah, I, I that that is something that I like about movies like B movies from the forties, fifties. Like some of them are like an hour long. Like I want to watch a Bela Lugosi movie. Okay, here's Murders in the Rue Morgue. It's like sixty minutes. Let's go. And like um, you know, for for me anyway, I don't get the same sort of like disconnect that the rest of you are getting in terms of like setting him up as a good enough guy. Like we get like yeah. we get him saying it, like, "Oh, I've been I've been good," and then like we have a like brief nice call with his wife, and then it kind of like starts to starts to, to unravel from there. <laughs> yeah, I I think it's less of a a storytelling or script issue than more than it's just like the actors fluctuating personalities are like very, very quick, you know? So we don't, we don't really get a whole lot of, you know, if, if it was more gradual, him becoming more monstrous over the course of the movie, then it might land a little more, but here we're like, you know, he's cheating on his wife, like, seven minutes into the movie. You mentioned the, uh, the phone call. Uh, I'm sorry. It made me laugh because it reminded me of when they set up this phone call. It's like, all right, everyone leave the room. Give me some privacy. And then it cuts to like this, uh, like expedious, like triumphant music as it cuts to like the, the circuit, like mute room of like all the women, like connecting the, the, the call and then goes back to the phone call. It's like a really quick cut. And it's like, what was that in the movie for? <laughs> and it, yeah. It's got this like super exciting mute. Like, like he's like, man, phones, you know, can um, you believe it? Just tra- Yeah. Your wife's, your wife's on the phone. Okay. Uh, have it transferred to, I don't know, my office, whatever. And then it shows the people like the magic, transferring the call and it's like do 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 like it's got this exciting music calls, and it's like the new thing yeah i mean in, in the 50s yeah kind of yeah kind of yes i understand it most it was weird in the movie <laughs> most most exciting phone call transfer ever committed to film <laughs> um uh i think this is probably the i don't know the whole like two-headed guy uh subgenre <laughs> cuz you have like the thing with two heads uh, there's there's multiple two-headed person movies but I, I think this might be the first one um so yeah how do how, like i don't know the, the some people might find it a little underwhelming when he finally splits from the monster and it's just this like sasquatch thing i like monkey okay <laughs> You, you you can't go wrong with a murderous monkey. Um, um yeah, I mean the, this definitely is not uh you know, it's not as good as like the Wolfman or like you know, some of the older, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but it's also not the worst of its type. No. It's also um, not the best two-headed person monster movie. <laughs> Do you have a favorite two-headed person movie? I mean, probably the thing with two heads. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But no, I mean, for a movie like this, you could do worse, as we will find uh, in a few minutes. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the... Uh, the like yeah i don't the 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 perform the guy playing larry is he he his performance is what makes the movie uh entertaining but it's also where like yeah it's not quite up to par with you know some of your like like we we keep saying lon cheney um but yeah like uh we uh if people who haven't seen the movie Remember earlier, you know, uh, we've we've said a few times, you know, he. I think probably because it's the funniest scene that he does is when he he's like, "Leave me alone," and you know, he 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 he, he like he just yells a lot, like, um, and yeah, the I don't know, some of the dialogue has that funny like kind of old school B movie dialogue like one of my favorite lines is like when the cop is talking to him and he's like do you remember when i saw you in the bar after the priest was after the old voodoo priest was murdered or something like that you know (laughs) um as if that's something that just happens regularly in japan i remember that um yeah (laughs) but uh no it's a good time and it's a really quick watch like very readily available um and yeah this is my second time watching it and i i had a really good time with it um so uh yeah without uh without further ado um you know how many uh uh how many i don't know how many drunk transforming people do you give this out of five um uh, i'll go around the room um i'll start with kevin um well, I, I, again, I really quite enjoy this. It's got, you know, I, I like the universal kind of creature features yeah. quite a bit. And it's got this similar energy to that, but it's like got a much better, you know, you're comparing it to Wolfman. Like that's a high bar, but you know, if you yeah, yeah, we're, com- yeah, it's, we're, com- we're comparing it to classics that it probably never even tried to <laughs> try to but, you know emulate, if you're like me you know? and you're like you know throw on captive wild woman or something like that like this is this is a better movie than like tarantula mm-hmm. so um oh i don't know yeah, I, I really like tarantula. like tarantula too i like tarantula too that's that, that's why i'm saying like i really like this movie <laughs> you should have used the deadly mantis. i like the deadly <laughs> mantis <laughs> um yeah I mean, we haven't mentioned yet i'll just throw out two things first of all the main actor uh uh, Peter Dinley or Dinley or however it's pronounced. He's, he's the voice of Jeff Tracy in Thunderbirds. So he's got that kind of like thundering gravitas all the time going to him. Uh, and also um, as, as a, as a character archetype, terror kind of falls into that same mold as like Madame Piranha or Dr. Namikawa mm-hmm. or, or Miss Namikawa. I was thinking like that earlier. Katsura yeah. Mifune. So like, um, yeah, like the the female assistant of the you know evil mad scientist that then falls in love with the main character and so on and so forth. So uh, yeah, but yeah, like She's this awesome. is kind of like like proto like what we get into like the body horror uh, stuff mm-hmm. later in, in in Japanese cinema and, and world cinema. But um, so like I I 
quite enjoy this movie. Um, I, I would, uh, I'd like to see some, you know, I, it's public domain. So you just make a, make some Sophie yeah. or something from it. And, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Like you, you would think someone would have done a toy or something by now. Like the, this is, I don't know. It's not, like I said, it's not talked about a lot, but it's, it's taught, it's well known enough that it, you could call it like a cult film and, yeah, that's that's weird. So yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the I'm sure the most generous in the room, and I'm gonna give this a four out of five. Uh, dead policeman whose body is on a uh, the the part of the bell when it goes to swing and, and make a loud noise at the temple. <laughs> that the hammer is that what that's called? Uh, you know, I'm not. I don't. I don't quite know the anatomy of bells very well. Um, so we'll, we'll just say yeah. Um, uh, all right, Tom. Where are you on uh, on this? Yeah. One? So it's got a lot of charm. Not all of it intentional, but certainly some of it. It works on kind of a lot of different levels. It can work as like a uh, cheesy B movie to. to laugh at it can work as a fun b movie to laugh with that can work a little bit here and there as uh as a like a creature feature kind of horror movie type of thing and you know even its flaws kind of work in its favor in terms of just making it entertaining i i agree that the the character of Larry is less a storytelling <laughs> flaw than it is a casting problem. It's, I do think that, you know, just to say it again, if that had been Lon Chaney or just to any other, like, I, I can't think like, like it's all American actors, but like if that had been like an Akira Takarada or something, you know, it would like a, a more or a, a Akira Kubo, too like just a more oh, a yeah, more yeah. like sympathetic type of presence a more likable charismatic type of presence who you then see become more uh, unhinged and unraveled and more haggard too you know someone that doesn't start off looking looking <laughs> a few sheets to the wind already <laughs> uh could have it could have actually worked but that that even still kind of works in the movie's favor of just it being entertaining, and so I had a lot of fun with this one, and I will give it a three and a half. Okay, uh, Lux, what do you think? I basically feel the same way as Tom. I, I kind of really enjoy the the campy fun of it, the the I can laugh with it and laugh at it aspect of the movie. Um, I like I said before, I really think. All of the characters and the cast are great, uh, and I, I genuinely like pretty much most of the movie, other than the performance from Peter Dentley. Um, so, yeah, uh, to, to sum it up, I will just say that I will give it uh, three amateur rock climbing certificates required to reach your <laughs> home in the volcanic mountains <laughs> out of five. Um. Uh, so yeah, no, um, this was a movie that I, I don't know, I watched like a year or two ago and it was like, I probably should have watched that earlier. 
I stick with that. I mean, this, this, it's a really fun movie. I, I really enjoy it. Um, uh, like I said, it's not the best of its type. It's not nearly the worst either. Um, and uh, I really like this movie, and just how it came together is weird. You don't get a lot of these kind of, um, you know, usually movies like this are made in one place. You know, here we have an independent movie made in Japan with, like, half Japanese cast and crew. Um, and it's like, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know who around could even talk about it who's still alive. But it's it's one of those movies where it's like, I really wish there was more information about it. Um, Behind-the-scenes stuff, you know, interviews with the director. From what I understand, um, some, it, I don't know who it was. I don't think it was Brett. But someone tried to call Kenneth Crane and interview him about this, and he was like, I, fuck no. <laughs> he's like, I don't want to talk about, he's like, yeah, I made movies, I don't want to talk about them. Like, I don't. In fact, uh, the person that answered the phone was Terry Zimmern, who played um, uh, Tara in the movie. Like I said, this is her only acting credit, and she mar- ended up married, marrying and living I think through the rest of their days together, married the director, um, uh, and then. Uh, but she was like, "Yeah, I'll okay, I'll talk about it." And Brett has an interview with her up, and it's like, you know, I don't know how much she remembers about the movie, but it's a good read. And um, he did that right before she passed away, so she was, uh, I guess, a little more willing to talk about it. Her husband was just like, "I, <laughs> I'm retired, you know. I, I don't want to. Don't, don't make me remember. <laughs> remember this stuff." You know, um, (laughs) yeah, um, at least people were able to get Fukuda to talk. Like if you were really nice and like, we're like, I really like your stuff. He'll be like, you, you, you know, you wrote me a really nice letter. Let's, let's do an interview. This guy was just like, I just, no, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, I wish there was more, you know, really we have like that interview with her and like a couple things from some trades and stuff, but Nothing super substantial, and, you know, that's why, you know, when, when that Blu-ray came out, I was like, well, I hope they can get some, like, sci-fi historian to do, like, a commentary or something. But, yeah, I think it's just, like, there's not just there's just not enough out there to sustain it. So maybe someday. Um, they could have been anyway, the, uh, the Elvira uh, segments on that. Yeah, yeah, Elvira did this one. Um, yeah, no, uh, I'm I'm going to go with a three, but it's not like, a, oh, you shouldn't watch, like, it's just mid or what it's like it's a good 3 it's a recommendable 3 like um anyone listening should watch it i think um and and i think it i don't know this is not a movie that is easy to not enjoy i think i think most of the people listening would enjoy this movie um so everything i said about the making of that movie and uh you know i don't know pretty much everything we said about the manster like imagine yourself like yeah, imagine everything we just said and be like, okay, how, how what about that but <laughs> so wrong? That perhaps <laughs> another movie where an actress who was married to somebody in the production, oh, this is her only film role, and she plays the assistant to an abusive mad scientist who lives in a volcano base and is experimenting with human evolution? Oh. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so if you're thinking think everything we everything you know about the Manster and like all that but just <laughs> gone wrong, then you get Revenge of Dr. X, I think, is probably the most common title for it, but it's not what the movie's <laughs> called. 
<laughs> um, I can already hear people saying, like, what are you talking about? So this movie has a million titles. Um, so I'm going to give a little... Sit down, everybody. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, time for a history lesson. Um, my notes are kind of all over the place, so if I am bouncing around and sound like I'm, you know, on drugs or something. That's just the movie. Um, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's fitting for this movie. Um, So we have to give props to a a guy named James Kiss who who did a a super exhaustive article on this movie that was put out in Monster Attack Team magazine. Um, And he, so a few years ago, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, none of this information was probably known. it's just It just so happens this one guy was so intrigued by this bizarre monstrosity of a film that he did some real legwork and tried to track down some information, all of which almost comes down, comes from a magazine called Stars and Stripes, um, uh, which was a magazine uh, published in Japan in English um, for um, uh, the reader base was basically, you know, um, Americans, um, you know, who are in service, who are stationed in Japan. Um and uh, they would have, you know, an entertainment column. And that is where you actually do get some cool information sometimes. Um, there's a, f- a picture that I've shared with you guys a million times at this point, but it's King Kong from the King Kong Escape suit, like, sitting in front of a typewriter. Um, I don't... I, that, I, I'm pretty sure that originates uh, from an, an article about King Kong Escapes from the Stars and Stripes magazine. So it was a magazine... Um, uh, that was, uh, like Newsweek for, you know, people stationed in Japan. Um, and, uh, and so they would run an entertainment column. Um, uh, a lot of the times would be, uh, by a guy named, uh, Al Ricketts who wrote a lot of the articles about this movie. He was also this movie's publicist and a regular writer for Stars and Stripes. Anyway, um, this guy, I don't know how he got it into his head of, oh, if I search Stars and Stripes magazine, which I think think it wasn't until 2008 that that got transferred over to microfilm. Anyway, this guy, James Kiss, was like, I'll check Stars and Stripes because I can't figure out anything about this movie. And that's where a lot of this comes from. Um, so people, uh, my co-hosts and listeners at home, um, if you thought Ed Wood would ever escape being talked about on Kaiju Transmissions, uh, you're wrong. Um, this is a movie written by Ed Wood. Now, I don't, I don't know how much of an introduction anyone needs to Ed Wood. I mean, he's, he's often called, uh, the worst director of all time, made Plan 9 from Outer Space, uh, The Sinister Urge, Bride of the Monster, Glenn or Glenda, a bunch of these old movies, um, gave Bela Lugosi a lot of his, uh, uh, final acting roles, um, the subject of what is, in my opinion, Tim Burton's best film, called Ed Wood, um, with Johnny Depp and um, uh, 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 Martin Landau and Sarah Jessica Parker. I mean, like, anyone that enjoys old kind of sci-fi movies should watch that movie. Is Ed Wood actually the worst director? No. Not when Omar um, Sayyar His movies exists. have a... S- <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed Wood, uh, like like Omar, is a very um, eccentric person who has his own 
very unique look of the world, and his movies were absolutely awful, but awful in a way that it's like, only this guy could have made this. Um, which, you know, I've watched enough nothing burger, B-movies, TV movies, so on and so forth, that just feel like anyone on Earth could have made them. Ed Wood, yeah, his movies are terrible, but only Ed Wood could have made them, and that's why he's special. That's why um, people like me still enjoy his work to this day. Um, I'm not going to tell you they're like his stuff is good, (laughs) but it's very much only stuff that man could have made. Um, uh, so in 1967 is where we need to go here with Ed Wood, because I don't know if you, I feel like most of his movies weren't really appreciated until like way after the fact, but even, even what would be called his quote unquote glory days, you know, the days that you see in the movie, Ed Wood, um, were were long over by by 1967, and um, uh, so that's when he, uh, um around the time that he started merging into making softcore stuff instead of you know sci-fi horror, you know Orgy of the Dead was in 1965, and that's kind of where you have the biggest overlap between science fiction horror and skin flick kind of stuff. Um, and he would he would continue to make movies like that um, through the seventies. Um, that's also, but you know, the late the sixties also when he starts writing, you know, um, novels, um, you know, crime books, sex novels, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, the, these are kind of his wilderness days, uh, I guess is is more or less what I'm trying to say. Um, but in the fifties, he wrote a script about this killer plant monster. Um, like I said, 19, 1967, he's in the wilderness days. Um, and that is when he, uh, sells his, sells this script, um, to a guy named Norman Thompson. Um, so we're going to pause for a moment and say, um, most of what people thought they knew about this movie was guesswork. Um, even today you go onto Wikipedia and like half the information about this movie is wrong. Um, so just to clear up some of that stuff, some of which we will come full circle to in my little speech here, um, this movie was not made or co-produced or by Toei. Um, in fact, when asked about this, people at Toei said, we don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know, leave us alone. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it is not directed by Kenneth Crane, although, Looking at the Manster and looking at this, yes, the Manster is the better movie, but I could see why someone would maybe guess that this movie was made by Kenneth Crane. Um, so those are like the big ones, and there's some more stuff there that we'll get back to. Um, you're probably wondering, like, why does no one even know who? Why does or did no one even know who directed this? It's a great question. Um, we're going to save it till we get to the eighties. Yes. The eighties. This is a long and winding road we're on people. Um, so if you're like, Oh wow, bird's been talking a lot. I can't wait till he shuts up. Like I have bad news for you. I'm going <laughs> to, there's, there's more I layers here. Um, anyway, so I shit about Omar Sayah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, okay, so I mentioned uh, a guy named Norman Thompson bought the script. Who is Norman Thompson? So at the time, he was the director. Uh, uh, so he was the director. At the time of this, he was um, an entertainment supervisor for the U.S. military in Japan. And he, was a, he, and he, he, he wrote you know, his own pulp novels and stuff. Um, what he was probably the most proud of in his life was he was a member of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater Company. Um, so he performed in uh, War of the Worlds, most famously. Um, from what I understand, he did not like to talk about the stuff he directed. You know, he liked to talk about hanging out with Orson Welles and stuff like that. Understandably, when you look at this movie. Anyway, so how did Ed, how did Ed Wood's script get in the hands of this guy? So, uh, Norman, like I said, he's an entertainment supervisor for U.S. military bases, you know, and, you know, he, he worked a lot with the military. Most of his uh, friends, military folks, stationed in Japan. So one day, uh, Thompson is uh, drinking with his friend, uh, Lieutenant Larry O'Neill. Um, they're bored. They're like, you know, what, what's something we could do just because we're bored? They're like, why don't we... Sh- <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. So they're like, why don't we make a movie? Um, you know, a lot of these movies are being made here. You know, English co-productions are being made here. Um, why don't we make a monster movie? So they scra- s- they scrape up a budget of about $75,000. Somewhere in, in their batting around of ideas, they come along this script from Ed Wood. They buy it from Ed Wood. They do some rewrites on it to relocate the uh, geography to be in Japan. So, um... If you're so, this is literally a movie made by some military people who are bored. <laughs> so, another drinking buddy of uh, Norman Thompson was Al Ricketts, who I'd mentioned from Stars and Stripes magazine, and he's like, "Yeah, get this guy James Craig for the lead, mostly because he looks a lot like Clark Gable." And they're, I don't know, maybe we can trick people into thinking <laughs> Clark Gable made this. But James Craig was was a veteran actor uh, that he was in a lot of movies at the time. Um, yeah, maybe a young, maybe when, That's... maybe in his younger days, because like I said, James Craig was mostly known for old westerns. That's how um, this guy got his start in acting. He was pointed out at by someone who knows. As looking similar to Clark Gable when Clark Gable was unable to appear in films. I think was Clark Gable in like active military service or something like that. And I I think I I may be getting that correct. I might be getting it very wrong. Uh, I'm going to try and double check that. But for now, I will say that and I'll correct myself if that not if that turns out to not be true. But Clark Gable was like in active military service and couldn't be in movies, and so they were looking for lookalikes to more or less like kind of trick people. <laughs> and yeah, so he he's he's like the the Bruce Le of Clark Gables or like the Asylum version <laughs> of Clark. And apparently, Gable. he tested for the role of Rhett Butler and Gone with the Wind. Now that I'm looking at his stuff. So that might be um, where someone was like, someone was like, "Hey, this guy like isn't as good of an actor as this other 
this other Clark Gable guy, but uh, keep him <laughs> keep him in mind for the the wave of Gable exploitation. I mean, he was good enough to be a yeah. Conga. <laughs> um, was he James was Craig in Conga, Conga? According to Wikipedia. Oh, sweet. Conga's another movie that's sort of like a better version of this in in its own way. Um, anyway. Um, but yeah, Al Ricketts, the Stars and Tri- Stripes guy that uh, uh, snagged James Craig, he uh, he also plays the gas station snake guy in that really bizarre scene. Um, so uh, then we have our female lead, played by uh, Atsuko Rome, who was, she was the wife of a, a retired army colonel who was another drinking buddy of these guys. Um she had no aspirations of being an actor. Um, you know, she even said, like, yeah, I'm just doing this because, like, it's like if I ever do another movie or not, like, I don't care. Um, so here's another one that is weird because, like I said, for many years, everything about this movie was guesswork. James Craig was easily recognizable. No one else in the cast was. In fact, there's people that we still don't know who they are. Again, the lingering question to why the hell doesn't anyone know who anyone is will be answered, I promise. The, the crazy thing about this is for many years, she was miscredited as the actress um, Miyoshi Yumeki, who, if people don't know, I mean, there's really no reason people in our age group would probably know her, but she was an Oscar-winning actress. <laughs> Um, did a lot of prestigious films. In fact, she was the first, I think, the first East Asian actress to win an Oscar, um, which I believe was for the movie Sayonara. The reason for so many years, this poor woman, I mean, she probably has, has had no idea that anyone anywhere would think she was in this <laughs> piece of crap. But um, again, guesswork. You know, she looks kind of like her, so people kind of ran with that. Um, I'm going to make things so much more complicated. I'm so bear with me. So, uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, double garden, devil garden, the devil's garden are all titles. This movie is sometimes referred to as the reason for that is that in Yumeki's filmography, there is an unrealized project from around 1970, which is around the time this movie came out, uh, with the Jap- Japanese title Akuma no Kiwa, which translates into, depending on the translator, any of those titles I just said. So this movie is not called any of those things, and that is only because it is being translated from a Japanese title of an unrealized project that an Oscar-winning actress that people think is in this movie is not in this movie. That is the reason for that. Is everyone... Uh, I, I So I need to pause right now and say, like, is everyone no. okay? I just want to read the, 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 the first three sentences that. on the, the Wikipedia page because every one of those sentences is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go for Venus it. Venus Flytrap, also known as Body of the Prey, is a 1970 American-Japanese science nope. fiction horror film shot partially in Japan. That is incorrect. It was shot entirely in Japan. It was just true. I think there's one scene they filmed outside of Japan. I think it's the gas station one. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, it was distributed by Toei Company. This is also incorrect. No, nope. The film was released in Japan. Incorrect. <laughs> 
as Aquaman nope. and Niwa at the Devil's Garden. <laughs> nope. <laughs> if this was a movie I felt like people had heard of or cared about, like me and Kevin probably would have had like ten minutes about this in our when we did our Kaiju Mythbusters thing in G Fest. You know, maybe if we ever do another one, yeah. we'll fit some Doctor X in there, but. Yeah, no. Again, don't rely all on Wikipedia, people. Like, if you're really trying to learn about something, try and expand your sources into other directions. Wikipedia can be useful, but it's not the be-all, end-all. Anyway, so yeah, that is why Double Garden, Devil Garden, The Devil's Garden, Akuma no Kiwa are titles people bring up. And it's because it's because this poor actress who had nothing to do with this, who's an Oscar-winning, beloved actress got confused with the person in this movie. So, things are going to get weirder, guys. I am just warning you. Like, you know, uh, take a deep breath, drink some water, like, The good buckle news is in. the movie itself uh, has so little happening. <laughs> and somehow goes on for an hour and a half. <laughs> yes. Um... But yeah, like Kevin said, it was never released in Japan. People that so that brings us into the next thing with that title Akuma no Kiwa. People assume, oh, 1970. This actress that we think was in this was in the Japanese movie called that translates into Garden. That's kind of like Venus Flytrap. That must be it. Must be the Japanese title. It was never released in Japan. In fact, it was never released anywhere. You're going to be like, what the hell? That's what you're thinking. So bear with me. All of these questions will be answered in a moment. Um, so anyway, then we get to uh, a rushed two-week shooting schedule. Um, oh, we should mention James Yagi, who's the news correspondent in the American version of King Kong versus Godzilla. He shows up in the cast here, too. Um, so uh, then this, this monstrosity of a movie is made, uh, and... Um, it gets shown at a preview screening for uh, uh, special services, um, you know, the motion picture division, the movie theater in Japan in April of 1968. I think they also had some kind of party. Um, Brett did an interview with the actress at, uh, at, at Suko Rome, and she mentioned the celebrated actor Ryo Ikebe being at a party for this movie. I doubt he watched it. But I don't know. Uh, anyway, he's he yeah he was a celebrated Japanese actor. Um, he's the lead in Gorath. That's probably what people and and Battle in Outer Space um, and War in Space. So people listening would know him from those. But he's in all kinds of stuff. Uh, anyway, yeah, he he's too good to be associated with with this thing. So that uh, preview screening um, in April in Japan for the special services. Um, there's a review that uh, a negative review in Stars and Stripes oh, magazine. You don't say. Um, Rick, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and 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 so th- 1968, that preview screening, that is the last this movie would be seen until 1985. Um, now Thompson was still involved in the entertainment business and as you know as a distributor and stuff in Japan until he moved out uh, moved out of Japan in 1978. So why this movie as bad as it is, I mean, I don't know, monster movies are easy to sell. So I don't know why that movie was just missing for so long why it never got a distributor or anything like that. So now we get it, now we have to go to 1985. Um, there's a small, so this is in the, the glory days of VHS where there, uh, you know, it seems like at a, a certain point in this boom, everyone and their mom was making their own little video label to put out movies. 
Um, so we go to a company called Regal Video, a small uh, video label based out of New York, which was kind of a side business for peop- these people that own a furniture store, more or less. At some point, they stumbled upon some film prints in a New York clearinghouse. In that, they find this movie. It is missing its opening credits. So they don't know what this is or who's in it, who directed it, anything. (laughs) So um, the movie has no opening credits, so they just kind of slap the opening credits of another movie they released called The Mad Doctor of Blood Island onto this movie with their, what's the title? Okay, Revenge of Dr. X. Sure, whatever. So you start this movie and you see a title, Revenge of Dr. X. That's not what the movie's called. Ed Wood's resume calls it Venus Flytrap. Kevin mentioned the title Body of the Prey. That is the title that it was filmed under when they made it in Japan. So Venus Flytrap and Body of the Prey are the only two legitimate titles out of the hundred for this thing. So Revenge of Dr. X is just a, they just threw that on as a title. And then after that title card, you see the opening, the, the rest of the credits are all people for Mad Doctor of Blood Island. It's literally the credits to that movie. Um, and their home video release of it, also the, the plot description on the back is the plot description of Mad Doctor of Blood Island. The cover to the VHS is like a woman, like a scantily clad woman looking afraid like it's a slasher movie, stuff like that. So it's a misleading cover, the wrong plot, the wrong credits. So when I mentioned, yeah, people were guessing for many years, okay, that's this actress, this was probably directed by Kenneth Crane because they know the Manster. They know the Manster is a kind of similar movie directed by an American. So all of the stuff we know is from these Stars and Stripes articles that this guy James dug up because he was like, what the hell is this? Like, none of the people in the opening credits, like the people in the opening credits are actors like, that I don't know, they're not like household names, but they're people you can look up and look at what they look like, and it takes very little of that to be like, none of these are the people in this movie. Um, Sir, not appearing in this So, uh, but there's still some questions we don't know. Um, there's still lots of missing credits. Like, the guy that plays the hunchback assistant, we don't know who that is. No one knows who that is. That guy, I don't know, we don't know who he is. That could be anybody. We don't know if he's alive, we don't know if he's dead, we don't know if he's in other movies or not. We don't know if he was, you know, someone's uncle that just stumbled his way into... We don't know. Um, the, the Whoever's in the monster suit, um, you know, the those Stars and Stripes articles were, would be written really cheekily sometimes. So it cre- the only credit we know for the guy in the monster suit is someone... That in those art like articles that like had a lot of silly jokes in them is credited as someone named Gargoyle. We don't know who Gargoyle <laughs> is. Some people have thought it's the director. We don't know. We don't know who is in that suit. We also don't know who made the suit. So um, I could see someone looking at it and being like, "That looks like a Toei monster," and maybe that's how the Toei connection started. But we don't know if Japanese. I mean, it could be anyone. Anyone. Like we don't know if that was made by someone that you know. Worked on other tokusatsu, we don't know. Like, we don't, there's so much about this movie, we still don't know. What we have pieced together is everything I've just said. And 
so yeah, for many years, people were kind of just guessing who the director was, who, who, who some of these actors were. That's why there's so much information about this, because this movie kind of was shown once, thrown out, stumbled upon by a tiny independent video company without credits. They slapped another movie's credits over it. That's also why it's in the public domain, because like no one should have owned this thing. <laughs> you know, it just kind of it just kind of disappeared for a couple decades, and then it just miraculously this little company found it. Now the reason every version of it you see looks like crap is because. I mean, like I said, th- these are this was a small label. This, this originates with this the, the version we all watch originates with this small label owned by furniture store people. You know, they they okay, we got this movie, we got it out, whatever. So they threw all those film prints they found away, which archivists listening to this are probably like, oh my god, why? So that this is probably the best version of this movie anyway this is probably the only version of this movie this vhs transfer that is very easy to find on youtube a million budget packs by mill creek echo bridge whatever um so yeah i i mean that's why the name of the movie the credits of the movie the director of the movie the distribu- distribution of the movie all of it is usually wrong when you read about it truth is it was made by some bored guys on a military base that just wanted to figure out can we make a movie let's buy a script from ed wood and then it is awful and it gets seen once until an independent video company picks it up and releases it with the wrong credits that is the long and winding road of and then you made revenge me of dr it. x yes and then you locked <laughs> us all in a room and made all of us watch it <laughs> yes um, so that, yeah, um, that's a lot. Everyone feel, uh, everyone feel okay? That's one of the craziest, most complicated, like, histories of a movie we've ever done. It's insane. Um, but it is also a minor miracle, miracle with the word question mark, that this movie still exists. Um, if not for this independent, how how it got from the Regal video release to a billion DVDs and stuff is anyone's guess. Um, it seems like more people started to see it when Mill Creek put it on one of their movie sets, which I have actually. It's their uh, Fifty Chilling Classics <laughs> set, and then um, yeah, because <laughs> that's what this is. Um, but I, my guess is they probably inherited like a cattle in a bunch of like stuff from maybe this regal company or whatever and just threw it all out out there into the wind as as mill creek does um and it has since become kind of something that is on a billion of these public domain movie sets um uh so yeah that is where this came from i i guess i don't know dr x is what i usually call it because it's probably the most common title but it's not actually the name of the movie venus flytrap or body of the prey are the only legitimate titles um so uh and then i made all of you watch it um I'll never forgive you <laughs> <laughs> um uh, but yeah, the, that Monster Attack Team article is really good. It's too bad those magazines are kind of hard to find now because they they were the, like those were really good issues um, that you know. Luckily, Kevin has um, 
uh, I had the issue with this article in it, and I don't. I have no idea where it is now. Um, so um, I'm going to do something a little weird with the plot synopsis, just because uh, for a couple reasons. So I first heard about this movie not from Monster Attack Team, not from any Tokusatsu nerds or anything like that. Um, Brian Collins, who's a, a horror movie critic, that um, I don't know. He's a, he, he shows up as a talking head on a bunch of stuff. Um, but for uh, uh, many years, uh, I mean, he still runs it on and off, but uh, he has a blog, Horror Movie A Day. Um, and I, I, I was um, following that blog. like every, His thing was I would re- he would review a horror movie every day. Um, and he was going through that Mill Creek set that I bought. And I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. This guy's going through and reviewing each of these movies every day. And I got to his review of this, and I was like, this sounds like something. And then, you know... Me and my friend uh, watched it, and we had a great laugh. Um, and then later, I got that Monster Attack Team thing, and I was like, oh, this actually has some sort of relevance. Of course, at that point, I would looked it up on Wikipedia and stuff and was believing all the stuff that was wrong. Um, so for the plot synopsis, I, this is my favorite paragraph that anyone's ever written about this movie. So I'm going to start with that, and that's more or less describing the main character. And then I'm going to do something weird, and I'm going to pass the mic to one of you guys, mostly because I really have been talking a lot, and I want to stop. Um, but anyway, so Brian Collins' Horror Movie A Day blog describes... <laughs> Uh, the main character, um, so he gives kind of a, he's like, yeah, this plot doesn't really kick in until like forever into the movie, and he says, until, I'm just reading it right off here, just because I love this paragraph, until then, we're stuck with our hero, a man so grouchy looking and just plain asshole-ish that he makes Walter Matthau look like Santa Claus. The film begins with him literally yelling at clouds, only then to order a shuttle launch based on the assumption that the wind will continue in a favorable direction. Good to know they leave that up to chance. He then spends five minutes or so screaming and yelling at two guys who made a miscalculation. We never know the nature of the error. For all we know, they could have just split the lunch check wrong. Thus, he is ordered to go to Japan to quote-unquote relax, but he pretty much yells at everyone there, too. In his least charming moment in the film, when the plant has come to life, he orders his assistant to get him some chickens and goats to feed it. He then grabs a small puppy and says, in the meantime, fully prepared to toss the poor thing into the monster's claws. That is our hero. That is just a poetry of a description for this guy because he's literally the most angry protagonist i've probably ever seen like if you thought larry and the manster flips a switch (laughs) at the drop of a pin this guy is like this is the most ill-tempered character i have ever seen so i have been talking a lot so i am going to do the listeners a favor and shut up and um i am going to burden lux with the rest of the, the plot description you knew it was. You knew it. You I hate knew you it. so much right now. <laughs> now you know how Matt feels all the so, time. So, I mean, well, yeah, he he gets really, really angry at everything, and and every interaction <laughs> he gets so angry to the point where he literally has an aneurysm and like falls over, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, are you okay?" And then uh, uh, James Yagi's his character is just like, you know, I, I I think you should go to this place I have in Japan and then take some time off. It could do you real good. And at first, uh, Bragan's like, no, I can't do that. And you know, I, you're 
an idiot. I hate you. Uh, I, I'm going to stay here and keep working. And then like it cuts to the next scene. It's like, you know what? I think you're right. I think I'm going to take, <laughs> uh, I'm going to take that trip to Japan. So, but first I'm going to go on a trip and, you know, in my car. So he jumps in his car and he starts driving up I-95, uh, except he doesn't know how to drive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we get some uh, very long scenes of him driving on the highway, uh, sputtering along. He definitely does not know how to drive a stick shift. James Craig only knows how to ride horses. Um, <laughs> presumably he ends up breaking down in North Carolina. I don't know how his clutch lasted that long from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and he meets a guy in like a, a weird gas station on the side of the road that also doubles as like a reptile exhibit museum like or the guy at the gas station just really likes snakes he, he particularly loves his coral snakes he wants he really wants to show james craig his coral snakes and that might be like just dialogue wise that might be the most ed wood of anything in like that <laughs> that's an ed wood scene uh, Edwards anyway, movies are Dr. like Dr. Brigham hones in on this Venus flytrap that he sees there in among all of the reptiles and snakes. And he's like, oh, this plant. And he like becomes enraptured with the Venus flytrap for some reason and decides to take it with him. So off he goes to Japan. He's flying on the plane with a Venus flytrap. He decides to stick his finger in there and it like bites him. And he's like, ooh, that hurts. And I, oh my gosh. Anyway, he gets to Japan. And <laughs> <laughs> he gets to Japan. Oh my God, at my brain. Uh, there's more driving. <laughs> he rents a car and starts driving. Um, this car makes it to his destination, which is uh, and like an abandoned hotel run by a guy with a hunchback. And he, it's... It has a greenhouse, and he's like, for some reason, says, hey, you know what? I have this Venus flytrap. I'm going to start doing experiments in this greenhouse. And <laughs> Keep in mind, this guy is not like a plant. Like, he's not a botanist. He's a NASA scientist. If he's even a rocket scientist, he's just like... He's just a guy with a plant who thinks that all of humans evolved from plants so he's going to prove that all humans evolved from plants by taking this venus flytrap and and uh splicing it with another species of marine uh aquatic life that's also carnivorous and somehow creating a frankenstein monster plant thing that with the help of the hunchback of the of the uh, hotel and uh his uh, beautiful female uh, like helper who's just along for the ride who he also just berates the entire movie and tells her that she's incompetent but also has like a scene every now and then it's like you're the best assistant that I've ever had and then the next scene he's like literally he's yelling literally for yelling no at her and telling her how everyone's like what is wrong with is you? like the next scene anyway <laughs> They they do the whole thing where they, they raise him up. It's straight out of Frankenstein. They, they pull the they raise the monster up on the the stretcher up into the the top of the greenhouse during a thunderstorm. And so they have the whole scene where you know it's alive. And then there's a, a whole portion of the movie where it's just kind of standing there in this greenhouse. 
<laughs> because it's a plant. And he and Dr. Bragan's real down about it. And he's like, oh man, I made this plant monster, but it's not moving. It's it's, it's dying. And then the, the, the assistant is like, well, you know, maybe it's impossible for this to happen. He's like, no, I refuse to believe in the impossible. Nothing is impossible. <laughs> and, then, and then, um, there, there's these dogs and puppies running around the whole time and constantly barking. And somehow one of them is near the monster and the monster eats it and is suddenly feeling better. And they all are like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this carnivorous plant monster feels better because it ate something. Um, anyway, it starts moving around at nighttime and, and they realize that it is like sentient to some sort of degree and seeking out things to eat. And it very quickly escalates to uh, the people of the nearby village coming with torches and pitchforks to kill it. And then the, the scientist goes out to try and save it. And he ends up dying in his <laughs> attempt to save the plant monster that he loves so much. The end. Take the goddamn goat. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to there there's a lot of crazy what happens stuff to the in plant here monster? Eh. eh. Lava. It like falls it, Yeah, they fall off a yeah. cliff into lava that's just there. There's a convenient sort volcano of. that's I like mean, <laughs> there's a volcano that's conveniently erupting the whole time and everyone's just like, "Eh, it's just a volcano." When Bird said, like, when Bird started a sentence by saying the movie was missing, I was like, oh, it's got to be missing the final reel or something. Because like. <laughs> <laughs> the, they show the doctor fall off a cliff and then it just smash cuts to like B-roll footage of lava flowing and then it's end. And you're like, what? Yeah. And then it shows the goat. The goat survives and the goat is just like chilling. And it's then like it, that part with the helicopter at the end of Common Rider Shin, where it's like there's a big explosion and like stuff happens. Um I mean there's I, there's so many crazy things in here. Like the score, the music in is is Brian Collins described it as Japanese circus music, but it's like weird xylophone music. Every now and then when it's trying when it's trying to be like creepy, the music is literally just like sounds like someone just like plucking a string. Like it's just like Bew! And there's xylophone Bew! and like wood blocks. <laughs> For some reason, every time it shows the 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 hunchback assistant like observing something it does that do 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 like this phantom of the opera like organ thing yeah, literally the first um, time he walks into the hotel the hunchback dude is sitting at an organ playing that like oh my lord what it, it it's it's like think of like how a movie should be made and like don't do that do every part of that wrong and that's how you get something like this. He's so angry. <laughs> and no, he really is. Like, this man is not, like, right. Like, this guy yells at people, clouds, 
puppies, plants, like everything. Uh, Like, and like the movie, like even like there's a part where the assistant's just like, "Uh, yeah, whatever. Like I'm used to your mood swings, and he's just like, oh, I've just been stressed lately. It's like, no, this guy's always like specifically to be less stressed because (laughs) yeah, do things that stress him out. It, it it gets to the point where like if you're watching this movie, anytime someone has to tell him bad news, like you get anxious. You're like, oh my god, this guy's gonna yeah. Blow there a is gasket. another scene later <laughs> in the movie where he where I was talking about he was getting the like, terrible bad news about the plant monster, I think, and he like just like starts holding his head and like has an aneurysm and keels over, and everyone's like, oh my god, what do you think he's dead? <laughs> <laughs> My favorite example of him just getting, like, mad for no reason was, like, there was a part where, like, one of the puppies... I forget what the dog was doing. I don't know. The dog was doing something cute, and, like, the assistant was, like, trying to, like, tell him, like, oh, you know, look what this cute dog's doing. And he's just like, everyone shut up! I've got more important things to do than dog things. line from the movie. Yes, that is literally a line from the movie. Um, so, yeah, that that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. Um, yeah, I I sympathize with all of you because um, there's different degrees of bad movies, you know, and sometimes there's ones that are enjoyable, and then there's other times where they're just the worst. Then there's other ones that are, like, really bad, but, like, if you watch them with people, they're, like, fun to watch. Um, Like I said, when I first watched this, I had a friend over, and we were just, like, cackling maniacally almost the whole time. But then I'm thinking of poor Tom, who's like, oh, I gotta review this dumb thing for a podcast, and he's watching it all by himself, and he's probably miserable. Um, And I see that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, I get it. I get it. Um, But because of that, like, I don't know. I I get it. I I think this time was the first time I ever watched this movie by myself. And yes, if you're thinking, well, Kyle, that implies that you've watched this movie multiple times. Um, I plead (laughs) a fifth. (laughs) Uh, But... Yeah, this is definitely the kind of bad movie where, like, if you're with friends and, like, you know, you're just having a movie night or something, it's going to be way more enjoyable than if you're exhausted after a day of work and you're watching it for a podcast you all by yourself. If you have friends, there is a Rift Tracks version. Yeah, that is true. Um, that is true. And I've seen the Rift Tracks version, too. Uh, God, I sound like I've seen this movie like a hundred times. Like I said, I'm not, I, I refuse to incriminate myself. Um, but yeah, the, a there is a Rift Tracks version that... <laughs> because this movie is public domain, the Rift Tracks version is also very easy to find. Um, so yeah, for those of you that um, are uh, not... Uh, Courageous enough to go on this venture alone, I recommend doing the Rift riff Tracks version. Please watch um, that instead. <laughs> <laughs> I should also mention, I, I have watched the Star Wars Holiday Special without Rift Tracks more than ten times. You're more crazy than Dr. Bragan. <laughs> <laughs> it's always been with people, though. I mean, that probably doesn't help, does it? That just means 
That ju- that just means I know dumb people. But um, so anyway, that was my first experience with this movie. Was like, oh, this sounds crazy. Let's watch it and have a good laugh. All of you, I think, have had a different experience. So with my piece being said here, um, I will. I'll start. I'll start with probably the the one that I feel like has suffered the most. Um, I'll let Tom kind of give his initial <laughs> thoughts on, on, on this. So, if you couldn't tell from all the hinting, I love <laughs> I love this. <laughs> this un- <laughs> I yeah, couldn't even he, make he's, that joke yeah, he pulled a Bragan and almost dying. He's falling um, over like Dr. Bragan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hated this <laughs> so much. <laughs> And I recognize that there are things in it that, like, are really funny, especially if you're watching, like, a Riff Tracks version or, you know, with people. Like, the – and even by myself, the one thing that just had me dying was his inability to drive. <laughs> it is magnificent. <laughs> like – it's astounding. It, it really is. You know, you would think in 1968 or whatever, when this movie was made that everyone knows how to drive a stick shift. Like granted, I don't, that is how I would drive a stick shift, but like it's 2023 and it's actually legitimately difficult to even get a stick shift these days. Like you have to special order them now. Uh, but you'd be wrong to think that everyone would know how to drive it back in those days because I think your letterbox said it gets a ha- it gets a half star for yes. his driving or something. Yes, it does. Um, but beyond that, it is it's just like it's driving around and then standing around and not talking about anything in particular and then driving around and standing around and not talking about anything in particular and then boobs and then driving around and then plants and then they make a monster and it just stands around for a long time. And yeah, I think the monster stand it's stand it's stationary up until the last 10 minutes maybe. And then it and then it just ends and there's like it's like the least <laughs> satisfactory ending in a I've seen in a movie in a in a good long while. And yes, there's there's fun to be had in the driving. There's 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 definitely some stuff to laugh at with like I could picture a riff tracks like really seizing on how bad this movie understands Venus flytraps and and how they work. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, oh yeah. That that it like when he's showing it like when he first puts his finger in it and he's like, "Ow, no, that's not how Venus flytraps work." No, yeah, they don't work. I, I've had them. Like I, <laughs> I had them as a kid. Sh- that's not that's not how they work. And then at when all. he's showing off how it works. And it like eats, was it like a fly that it eats? But then he's like, but watch as it doesn't eat yeah. this ant. And I'm like, that's also not how Venus <laughs> So there's like some, there's some fun to be had at its expense, but there's just, I can't imagine like I will, I will never 
ever, ever, ever watch this by myself ever again. I don't hate <laughs> myself that much. All right. Um, Kevin, we probably watched this around the same time, like when we first heard about it. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I have a few years on you because I think Monster Attack Team was yours, but yeah, I don't know. What What is your, uh, do you remember what your reaction is when you're like, oh, there's this crazy kind of Japanese monster movie I never heard of. I'll check it out. Yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a surprise. Because uh, I, I uh, tend to think of myself as a, as, as an erudite aficionado uh, or, 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 you know, a maniac. Um, so I, I have gotten through most of the, of the catalog of Japanese monster flicks. And then this one kind of blindsided me. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's, it's not good, but it has its own kind of weird charm. And the more you think about it, the funnier it gets. Um, yeah. It's yeah. funny to think about. Uh, I do. It's, it's fun to think of. It's probably more fun to think it, about. Than it's watch, something that, but, like, yeah. you can kind of watch it and mentally filter. Like, if you were to do a remake, you could do something really fun with it. Um, but the actual execution is, is highly flawed. That said, I love the, uh, the the monster costume just in terms of, like... I like the monster, too. Um, it does have that kind of Toei Kaijin look Absolutely. to it, almost. But... Did someone from Toei make it? Who knows? We don't know. Um, Some of these questions are just. I don't think this movie is known in Japan Um, at all. Uh, Yeah, I don't think. Probably not. I I mean, there might be some crazy hardcore people that have learned about it in the last few years, but yeah, I don't think it ever got a legit DVD release. I know that. um, Because I was perusing the classic horror film message boards or. Uh, um, and someone had linked to like a Japanese Amazon page for a DVD, but it was like a bootleg. So there are, I think, like nerds like us that are like, "Oh, I can get a bootleg of this," but <clears throat> I don't know. Probably like four people ever bought. Yeah, I mean, bootleg <laughs> is the best you're gonna do with this movie. Like, well, yeah, I mean, you're gonna get the same VHS sourced Regal Video transfer no matter what you do. Um. All right, Lux, you're the you're 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 the next uh, next in line. Uh, you're another newbie to the glory of Doctor X. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I said a lot while I was summing up the plot, and I don't really I, like Tom. Uh, there's a lot in this movie. Despite me saying how much this broke me, I actually did find a lot that I was laughing at because it is just so incredibly bad. Um, but it just lends to even when you're sitting watching it by yourself, hurting yourself. Uh, and I, and I mean that you are hurting yourself. If you watch this by yourself, uh, yes. you're going to be laughing at it and making fun of it the whole time to help process the trauma. Uh, and, um, the driving scenes are just, I cannot believe it. Why are they on film? <laughs> <laughs> Why He's so you... bad at driving that at first, don't they say like, the, isn't there a line where he says like, I got some bad gas. Like <laughs> <laughs> That might be what he said when he, you know, pulls into the gas station in North Carolina. Um, this, yeah, this is a, uh, this is a movie. You, you know, that <laughs> meme where, uh, you know, I, watching 
you know, Venus flytrap, you know, by myself and then watching Venus flytrap when my partner walks in or my parents walk in. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. my partner literally yeah. walked in when it was just nothing but tits on screen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, if it, if it, if, if you can explain, you can't, you can explain that as a cultural thing because Japanese pearl divers traditionally yes, dive topless. Now, does Nor? I don't know if Norman Thompson understood that because I feel like the the way that scene is is a little it's exploitative. exploitative. It just comes out of nowhere. Just, <laughs> they decide to go to the beach, and the, he also does not know how to swim. <laughs> he just <laughs> he puts on this uh, this aqua lung and like. Is just like flailing around underwater. He has no idea how to swim, uh, and and his assistant is like you know gets into her bikini and like jumps off into the the wave straight into a reef, and suddenly all these uh, pearl divers show up, just tits out hanging, and, and they're just like, hey, can we help you with anything? And he's like, yeah, I can't find this plant. And they're like, hey, we'll go find the plant. So tits out, go find the plant. Um, yeah, that's when my partner walked in. Uh, thankfully my partner's used to me watching really shitty movies because of shit like this. <laughs> so it wasn't really that weird. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, this movie's just full of just random shit like that that happens. And a lot of it's, a lot of the rest of it is just really boring. Like he just scenes of him sitting in the greenhouse with a monster, just standing there, not moving. And just like the dog's parking sound effect while the dogs are just like randomly wandering around the greenhouse and then random scenes of him driving a car that he doesn't know how to drive. There's a hilarious part later on where he like goes and gets a taxi and the taxi to go somewhere and all the taxi drivers are driving just fine. So it makes it hilarious by comparison, seeing all these scenes, (laughs) which at length they're watching him driving around in a taxi and they all drive just fine. But then, Immediately, he g- jumps into a car with his assistant, and he cannot drive. Uh. It, it's it's funny that you mentioned he can't swim because apparently he got the the role for this based on having uh, acted in the the Ghost Diver. So it was <laughs> entirely like, well, you you can swim, so you're probably a good lead man. I mean, I sh- I shit you not. If you watch yeah. this movie, it's literally just like the same scene of him like plunging into the water and then flailing all of his limbs around like an idiot. Uh, and they just kind of like shake the camera <laughs> around a bit and they show it from a couple different angles. And you see that for, I don't know, 10 minutes <laughs> or at least it felt like 10 <laughs> yeah. minutes. Uh, every, every, scene every scene is like, like 10 minutes long. Five, every scene is an eternity yeah, every, in this movie. <laughs> every scene is five minutes longer than it should be. <laughs> and we have no idea, like uh, Kyle said, we have no idea who the hunchback is. I like to think that the hunchback dude is straight up just like exploitative, just labor. Like one of the random dudes that like Jodorowsky would pick up in one of his movies and be like, hey, man, you look really weird and deformed. Do you want to be in my movie? <laughs> <laughs> For all we know, it could be like we, we have no idea who who that person is like at all. Like. It's just, yeah, it's uh, a wonder that, like, everything about this movie happened, like, (laughs) by coincidence. Like, it's it's a thing that shouldn't exist. (laughs) By far, the the best thing in the entire movie is 
thankfully at the very end of it when it ends not just because it's over but because because randomly he decides to to get a goat and carry a goat like out into the wilderness and he's just wandering around holding this baby goat <laughs> yeah for he yeah there's like 5 minutes of just this guy walking and around with a goat like calling the 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 creature he's like hey you know it's safe i'm here to help you He's calling it by its like scientific like the name of the plant as if like it's like a dog or a like a person that will like react and be like oh he's calling my name but like I don't, that's just not how anything Anyway the plant works. eventually shows up and he starts like holding the goat out toward it and the plant's just like standing there like awkwardly not doing anything and he's like holding the the, the goat out and he's just like Take the goat and just angrily screaming at the plant. <laughs> Take the goat, and, and then they just like stuck. He like th- like they he grows to grab the goat and they both stumble off the cliff into up like a river of lava and then the end. Literally, just the end. Nothing yeah. in this movie the is how okay, anything though. works, except except no. uh, as Lux mentioned to us earlier today. Potentially the propulsion lab. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So I I asked, like, why does this guy think plants, like humans, evolved from plants? Like, is that a thing, or is Ed Wood just a crazy person? And surprisingly, (laughs) you were like, Ed Wood may have known, may, may actually have known something, and maybe was aware of this. so what well, yeah what were you what what's going on um, i won't get too deep into it because this is, this is a very deep rabbit hole i want to say anybody who made it this far into this crazy episode of the podcast if you're really interested in the history of the jet propulsion laboratory and like the birth of nasa from that um look up the history of the jet propulsion laboratory and jack parsons like the guy who, who behind the jet propulsion laboratory this is a rabbit hole that is absolutely, you will not believe it. I'm just going to give a summary and t- I'll tell you it's even weirder than I'm going to summarize it. Basically, this, this Jack Parsons, even from the, the point he was a kid, was into like worshiping Satan and like literally worshiping Satan and doing experiments with blowing shit up in his garage. <laughs> This is back in like the uh, uh, I'm, I'm talking like the the, the 20s, <laughs> 1920s, uh, and by the 30s and by the time he's older, uh, and since he's such a, a, a Satanist, he uh, becomes friends with Aleister Crowley <laughs> and joins the Ordo Templis Orientis, and uh, and is really into Thelema, and he just like. He hangs out with all of these like just counterculture people and, and Aleister Crowley and is really into Satanism, uh, but is also this leading uh, rocket scientist because strangely enough, back then before NASA was like a thing and before people actually regarded rocket science as a real science, it was more like just a bunch of idiots blowing shit up in their garage. And that's how scientists looked at it. <laughs> So um, nobody really respected this dude. He was like on the outskirts of science and he would just like run these hostels where random other people like him lived uh, who would help him with his experiments and they would call themselves the suicide squad uh, 
<laughs> because they're, they're literally <laughs> doing this dangerous shit uh, that could kill them at any moment because they're just like, like, they're, like I said, blowing shit up in the garage. Um, eventually, though, one of these people who goes to stay in one of his hostels is this guy named L. Ron Hubbard, uh, who is just like this budding science fiction novelist. Um, him and L. Ron Hubbard really hit it off and they become like best friends and may have been gay lovers. Yeah, this gets really weird. <laughs> anyway, my, it's only fitting for I mean, this. Eventually, this, you can probably podcast. guess how he died. He fucking blew himself up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, if you look at the history of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and NASA, you don't see anything about this guy, Jack Parsons. And there's a lot of this is probably why. So now it's not so unbelievable to think that maybe somebody like Dr. Bregan at NASA is actually a fucking psychopath who would go and create a plant monster in Japan. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this episode's crazy. Um, oh, that's also not even bringing up like Werner von Braun, who was the Operation Paperclip German rocket scientist who was like you know, father of NASA and is greatly respected, even though he was a Nazi. Did he think humans evolved from plants? You know what? Maybe he did. <laughs> um, yeah. The, and, oh yeah. Another thing, like there's a lot of this movie that like Lux had mentioned constant, like, just hearing dogs barking like throughout the whole movie there's like all kinds of animal sounds that just like are there for no like there's a part where like they're sitting down to eat breakfast and like i swear for like the whole scene there's just a rooster you hear loudly like going cock-a-doodle-doo and it's like we don't we don't we never see a rooster they're inside and you just i don't know if that's just like their way of saying like hey it's morning to have a rooster on the soundtrack obnoxiously making sound. But that's another thing you deal with a lot in here. Um, uh, yeah. So Visually, this transfer, obviously, like we said, looks like absolute shit. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, yes. you can barely tell what's going on sometimes, especially if it's dark. The night scenes, yeah. Um, are, are everything bad. is just, everyone just looks amorphous blob like in many of the scenes well <laughs> it's very unlikely we'll ever get to see the movie look any better i shit you um, not if this was a 4k movie i would buy it i would i would too i'm stupid though like i have i like i can't justify that to anybody like i'm messed up i'm i'm a sick person <laughs> um that's messed up. I know. <laughs> you should seek right. help. Um, but yeah, I, one thing that gets not only is the bad driving, which is like half the movie. The other half of the movie is this guy just yelling, and I just find him hilariously ill-tempered. And that is the other thing that carries me through this movie, where like you, like we we've said, like nothing happens. Luckily, we have an unreasonably angry protagonist that will just scream at anyone at any and anything for absolutely no reason with very little 
provoking him. Um, and that is just hilarious to me that this cantankerous old man is like our supposed, I don't know, hero, protect, whatever he's supposed to be, is also the most angry person on earth. I was looking through reviews on Letterboxd that were cracking me up earlier because they're all about how, how, just how angry this guy is. On, on the contrary side, I just, I crack up at the over accommodating hospitality of this lady who's, cousin is a co-worker of his and therefore she brings him back to like her like abandoned villa and like just becomes his like live-in assistant for an undetermined amount of time yeah what like what there's no reason this woman needs to even like she's just there like oh if you need anything call me or whatever but then she spends like all of her time with him and like participating in like these insane science experiments I don't know, maybe he's like Jack Parsons and he just like did some sort of satanic ritual and summoned her there to be his assistant. <laughs> um, yeah, I, like I said, this is like a NASA guy. I'm not entirely sh- sure he's even halfway qualified to be doing any of the things he's doing. Um, he, he has some throwaway line about how he like did a minor in botany in college or something. Yeah. <laughs> 50 years ago. Yeah. What? That's all you need to, uh, combine the DNA of two plants and create a, uh, plant monster. <laughs> One of the plants he didn't like, he only found out about by going to the aquarium. I thought he was going to straight up steal it from the aquarium. Hmm. Yeah. What was that about? Like, it, that, yeah, like I think I think there's a scene where he's like, "There's got to be some kind of plant that'll do X, Y, Z," and then the next scene is just him like it's like ten minutes of him like standing in an aquarium, not talking to anyone, and staring at this plant, and then <laughs> and then that's when like he he gets these pearl divers. Well, it's weird because they don't even really do anything. Him and him and the assistant do the diving. The pearl divers just stand there. Well, one of the pearl divers is the one who finds the plant, and is it, and, and she and she like pops up out of the water. She's like, "Here, it's down over here." And then he he's then like, he "Oh, cool!" It. And then he jumps in the water, and we get the flailing scene that I talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for some reason, they brought a glass coffin with them. <laughs> yeah. Like it's literally a glass coffin, and they pull like this paper mache plant out of the water and just like lay it in the. It's not even a plant. It's just a big like lump of shit. Yeah, and they like yeah they make them they make the divers place it in the thing. That's another one where he just like yells at so, like someone who's just standing there. He just goes like, "Don't touch it!" And it's like they're not doing anything. Calm down. <laughs> and then they carry it off like a coffin too. Like all the pearl divers just help him just carry away this coffin. <sighs> you think NASA's paying for all this? <laughs> I hope He's so. supposed to be on vacation too. This this remote abandoned like resort, but it's like next to an active volcano with falling rocks and and a <laughs> and a greenhouse. Like it's <laughs> yeah. When they're first driving up, it's like 
the rocks like fall on the road like in front of the car and he stops and he jumps out and he starts screaming about how shitty this fucking place is and the rocks are <laughs> and he fucking hates it here and he's like what the fuck what's the fucking volcano for and the lady's just like oh i know it's just a volcano you know it doesn't bother anybody and he's like god damn it and they just get back in the car and start driving again but like it, it seems like if you had a giant glass greenhouse right next to something that's constantly like shifting and erupting like that, it would not work. But I don't know. Maybe no. Maybe they have a very proficient hunchback who maintains that glass greenhouse that doesn't get used by anybody. Oh, man. I mean, he's very good at fixing things by you know how many tiles he drops on the ground when he's trying to fix the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Why does the resort need a greenhouse in the first place? Yeah, I don't think that's like a common... That's not normal. Nothing about this movie is normal, though. Um, Alright, so... That's Dr. X. Uh, how many... Um, unreasonably upset old... NASA scientists doing experiments on plants for some reason. <laughs> we give it out of five. Um, Tom, I'll let you start. So <clears throat> we kind of gave it away earlier, but yeah, good. Go we ahead. talked about how movies can be good and movies can be bad and movies can be so bad. They're great. Um, you just recently released. So listeners have recently heard, uh, me giving Dragon Lizard Lord Super Monsters, the worst movie I've ever seen, a negative five out of negative five. It is so bad, it is genius. This is so bad that it's just bad. And it's just utterly incompetent. It is so, so boring. It was a struggle. It, it made me almost literally cry in that I was like so tired <laughs> and just wanted it to end that my eyes got like bleary and, and like bloodshot and hurty. Um, I give this a negative one out of negative five. It's just so bad that it's bad. It gets a half star because of the bad driving and then... <laughs> another half star because it technically isn't the worst movie I've ever seen. And that's it. <laughs> glowing, <laughs> glowing review. Oh, Kevin, what do you give? Whatever this movie is called today out of five. You know, I was tempted to go with a one and a half, but um, since it made Tom suffer so much, I'm going to go with a two out of five. Um, <laughs> <laughs> two, two out of five sequences of uh, Noriko waking up in the middle of the night, seeing Dr. Bragan walking out to the uh, to the greenhouse in the middle of the night. and then Oh, God, there's a million of those, too. That, that, that um, scene happens like what three or four times yeah that's a scene that just keeps happening for some reason um uh lux what what do you give this piece of piece of crap 
uh, as a recent acolyte of Omar Saya and also giving Dragon Lizard Lore Super Monsters a negative five out of five, being the most brilliant and horrible movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I must give this a negative two out of five. It is so incredibly boring. Yeah. And there is there. <laughs> Yeah, there, there is, and like I said, there are things that we that we laugh about, and you've heard us talk about them, and those are the things, those are the reasons I don't give it just a zero. Uh, and I think that if I watch it with friends, I could laugh at it and maybe yeah. have some of a good time. But it's nowhere near on the level of like your. I, I can't say competency, but like it's a pure, pure love of filmmaking that somebody like Omar Saya is a so dragon lizard Lord. This is just bad. People, these people should not have made a movie period. <laughs> they were bored. That's not a reason to make a fucking movie. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're bored. You buy an Ed Wood script and you just make it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's a no- good reason to make the movie is because you're gonna have that robotic dinosaur for a few days. Yeah, Tammy and the team. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. So I. I mean, there's no justifiable. Like, there's nothing you can say that's really good about this movie. It's horrible. It's boring. Um. I enjoy uh, there are uh, I enjoy the crazy non sequitur dialogue that is the Ed Woodian dialogue, which is very much here, and just some of the really more bizarre. Th- it's like everything is wrong about this movie, but some of the things that are wrong are so wrong in a way that a lot of other movies aren't. Um, and like a lot of the movies Ed Wood directed himself, it is very boring. <laughs> Um, but there's just something weird in the air of this movie that uh, I kind of like, even though it's just a miserable piece of garbage. Um, Dr. Bragan is hilarious. The driving's hilarious. The monster is fun. Um, so I can't say it's the worst ever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I give this like a one. Um on a normal scale and like, I don't know if I'm going into the negatives, I'm more into like the negative threes. Like, yes, yeah, there's things about it that are fun, bad, but you, but I also have the experience of mostly watching this with other people, you know? Um, so that's the way to do it. Um, and if you don't have people that like to watch crazy old movies, you know, you got your riff tracks version right there. So maybe reach for that or just, or just save your life and skip it, frankly. Oh, oh, how are you gonna how are you gonna how are you gonna do that to Dr. Bragan? <laughs> Don't <How> easily <laughs> Don't fucking watch this movie. Please do not. Oh, the, the, the give it a give it a chance. <laughs> Bird, do riff tracks. Bird is though. trying to harm all of you. <laughs> at, like he's harmed us. Um all right, well the pain is over. Normal life can resume now. You are just will live the rest of your life in your subconscious. This movie will be there. Knowing so. that I've seen this movie is like punishment enough. 
my, All right. my well, final words in life will be take the goat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's your crazy American uh, Americans lost in Japan <laughs> double feature for you. Um, so yeah, I, I guess we can uh, we can sign out. Thank you all for joining me, and people at home. Thank you for listening. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.